We come to chapter 10, verse 1. Now, we've talked about the fact that gold is now becoming the new commodity. Ever since the temple has been built, it's all about wow and Solomon's kingdom. What can he build? And this amazing thing. And the commodity of the wealth of the kingdom when Solomon first was given his wisdom from God was food and grapevines and fig trees, which totally tie into Deuteronomy and the blessings of God. And so all that benefits the people, and it represents the blessings of God. Now post the temple, and now he's using his wisdom for his own gain, the new commodity is gold, and lots of gold, tons of gold, thousands of pounds of gold, and it's all funneling into his palace. It's not being distributed to the people. And so not only is he violating the Deuteronomic regulations of the king of Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, but he's also funneling it all into his own thing. Now we come to the queen of Sheba. Now, this is often read in a positive light. Like the queen of Sheba comes, she visits, she sees how amazing the kingdom of God is, and she goes back home. And you're like, look, they're being a blessing to the world. God wanted Israel to be so amazing that they would say, who is your God? And then they would go back and tell everybody about it. But that's not exactly what's happening. Don't be deceived by the facts. The facts make it clear. She comes, she's amazed, then she walks away, and she talks about how amazing it is. But what's interesting is that the real emphasis in this chapter is still on the gold. The gold keeps getting mentioned over and over again. In fact, it gets mentioned more in this chapter than any other chapter in the whole entire book. As she's visiting... And when she visits, she brings tons of gold with her to give to Solomon. And Solomon gives tons of gold to her, too, which never made sense to me. Like, here's a box of chocolates. Oh, I got you a box of chocolates, too. (laughs) Oh, yeah, we should have just bought this for ourselves. So that whole exchanging thing doesn't, unless it's a one-up. I gave you $10. I gave you $15. Okay, so. But the other thing that's interesting is that she is not amazed by how who God is. She's amazed by Solomon, and she praises Solomon, and she praises all the amazing things that he has done, and it's clear that he has a lot happening for him, but never ever mentions what's been happening to the country, the nation. And so even her observations are really all about how amazing he is and how much wealth he has and how much wisdom he has. And look at all the amazing things he's been able to do for himself. She wouldn't get that this is supposed to be about other people because she's a queen too. And there's not very many selfless power figures in the world. So pay attention to that that slant that the narrator is putting on things. Chapter 10, verse 1. When the queen of Sheba heard about Solomon, she came to challenge him with difficult questions. She arrived in Jerusalem with a great display of pomp, bringing with her camels, carrying spices, a very large quantity of gold and precious gems. She visited Solomon and discussed with him everything that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all of her questions, and there was no question too complex for the king. When the queen of Sheba saw for herself Solomon's extensive wisdom, the palace that he had built, notice the palace was being thrown right up there with the wisdom, the food in his banquet hall, his servants in attendance, 
their robes and his cupbearers and his burnt offerings, which he presented to Yahweh's temple, she was amazed. Notice how everything is focused on the palace. None of it's the nation or the people. It's only Solomon in the palace. She said to the king, The report I heard in my own country about your wise saying and insight was true. I did not believe these things until I came and saw them with my own eyes. Indeed, I didn't hear even half the story. Your wisdom and wealth surpasses what was reported to me. Your attendants who stand before you at all times and hear your wise saying are truly happy. Notice the focus here is not that you are blessing your kingdom and creating great opportunities for everybody, but that, wow, isn't it amazing that everybody gets to stand in your light and your glory and be wowed by you every day? That's what she notices. That's what she points out. May Yahweh your God be praised because he favored you by placing you on the throne of Israel. Notice it's not about how amazing your God is. It's about, man, God did a really great thing when he put you on the throne. Because of Yahweh's eternal love for Israel, he made you king so you can make just and right decisions. Now she kind of gets it there. The point is for you to be a righteous and just king. She gave the king 120 talents of gold, a very large quantity of spices and precious gems, and the quantity of spices the queen of Sheba gave King Solomon has never been matched. That says a lot. Hiram's fleet, which carried gold from Ophrae, also brought from Ophrae a very large quantity of fine timber and precious gems. With the timber, the king made supports for the Lord, Yahweh's temple and for the royal palace and stringed instruments for the musicians. No one has seen so much of this fine timber to this day. King Solomon gave the queen, Sheba everything she requested because he had freely offered her. Then she left and returned to her homeland with her attendants. It's interesting that she comes with all this pomp and money and wealth. And then it ends with talking about all the pomp and the money and the wealth of Solomon. And the point is you expect a pagan queen or a king to act like that materialistically. But part of this story is showing that Solomon is being compared with her and he matches up really well. What she focuses on is how amazing his palace is, how amazing it is that everybody gets to listen to him all the time. What a blessing he is to everybody. But it's never about God getting the glory. It's never about what are you doing for your kingdom? How are the people benefiting from it? And all that kind of stuff. Notice before the temple was built, it was about everyone was under a fig tree. Everyone was under a vine. Everyone had everything that they needed. Now it's just all about the palace. It's all about the palace. And so her approval as a pagan queen should not really carry that much weight for us. Should not really carry that much weight for us. And there's no evidence she goes back converted. There's no evidence. She briefly mentions Yahweh, but mostly about him placing Solomon on the throne, not about, wow, who is your God? It's clear that your God is powerful. It's clear that your God is merciful. It's clear that your God is loving. It's clear that your God is covenantal. Nothing about that. Nothing about that. 
and then they exchange gifts of amazing mounts. Now we get to the wealth. Solomon received 666 talents of gold per year. Before you read too much into that, the wrong way. That number is highly significant, but not in the way that you think. And I'm not going to go into the mark of the beast. That's for the book of Revelation, and that's a whole other topic. But I will briefly mention this. Even the book of Revelation, it never really directly and specifically says that 666 is the mark of the beast. If you really read it, it says, in the beast's mark was 666. This is the mark of man, humanity. It clearly makes it clear that 666 is in the number of humanity that the beast ends up adopting upon itself. Not that it originated with the beast or is exclusive to the beast. It actually originated with humanity. The best way to understand this is, Remember, one of the most dominant numbers throughout the entire Bible, and especially in the book of Revelation, is seven. And seven is the number of completion. In the ancient world, to have one less the number of completion means incomplete. If, like, the magic number in basketball is 23 because of Michael Jordan, then 22 is not a good number because you're, you're falling short of the magic number. If 50 states is what makes us complete as a nation, then 49 is bad because it's one short of that. It's flawed. And so to have one less of something is flawed. It's incomplete. It's lacking. And so the number of man is six because we're flawed. It's incomplete. But it also represents us trying to, well, here's the other thing. So then the number three in the Bible also represents what? Does anybody remember? It's been a while. Redemption. Redemption. So when you put six and three together, it means that the redemption of man is incomplete. It's falling short. This is why when you get to the book of Revelation, there's three sets of seven plagues. It does not say that there's 21. It says that there's seven, and then another seven, another seven. The whole point is that this is the final redemption of creation. And that the redemption is now complete. Three sets of seven. And the reason that the beast takes the number 666 is he's offering a false redemption, an incomplete redemption. And so the contrast is between God's redemption at the end of the world that completes everything and humanity trying to save and redeem itself, and it falls short of the glory of God, for all have fallen. And so the point is that Solomon's been trying to redeem himself and save himself, so to speak, through his own wealth. And he's redeeming through his wealth. Just like people who are extremely wealthy might be really corrupt, but they give lots of money to charity to try to make up for everything they've done. It's the balancing of the scales. And what God is making the point here is he's trying to balance the scales on his sin with wealth, and it's not working. He's trying to save himself. He's trying to complete himself. He's trying to fulfill himself. He's trying to make himself content, satisfied, whatever word that you want to make with wealth, and he's empty. If he was up in your church after 40, 50, 60, 70 years of living life, his testimony was, Wealth was my God, and I tried to make myself happy, but the only time I was incomplete and not satisfied and totally empty on the inside. And that's the point the narrator is making here. It doesn't have end times connection. 
doesn't have any kind of eschological or, or any of that kind of stuff. It's or demonic. It's just he's trying to save himself or make himself content and satisfied through money, and it's falling short. It's falling short. Besides what he collected from the merchants, traders, Arabian kings, and governors of the land, Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. The last time I checked, a pound of gold was going for $17,000 around. 25 tons of gold is $889 million a year. That's in today's standards. He was bringing in 25 tons of gold a year. If you did the math on it today, that's how much money he was making a year. This is extreme wealth. And then notice it says that didn't even include what he collected from merchants and traders and Arabian kings and governors of the land. That's lots of money. And we all know about inflation. So that would have been even more money back then. Bill Gates was a pauper compared to him. Money was everything to him now. And he was not using his wisdom to bless the world now. He was using the wisdom to bless himself. He was getting rich. He used God's good gift in a good way in the beginning. But then when the honeymoon wore off, he began to use it for his own purposes. And remember, yes, wisdom is a great gift, but we can abuse anything. God gives you the gift of teaching, the gift of art, the gift of communication, the gift of stewardship, the gift of compassion, the gift of hospitality, the gift of whatever. You can use it for your own glory. And, and, and our churches are full of stories of people who are gifted by God, trying to serve God, and eventually over time they became self-serving and they used their gifts for their own purpose, whether they really realized it or not. And we need to constantly be guarding ourselves of that all the time because we can fall into it within minutes of serving ourselves. He also made 300 small shields of hammered gold. Three minas of gold were used each of these shields. The king placed them in the palace of the Lebanon of forests. There was so much cedar wood used in his palace. It was nicknamed the forest, the Lebanon forest. Cedar is expensive today, let alone back then. He made gold shields. Why do you make gold shields? That's completely impractical. Okay, one, it's too heavy to lift in any kind of practical way. And two, gold is one of the softest metals out there, so it's not really going to protect you in any kind of way. The king made a large throne decorated with ivory and overlaid it with pure gold. This isn't about the glory of God. Ivory is expensive today. Like, that's like a gold-plated throne all decorated with ivory all over the place. This is just, and who's going to see that? The people come and they're going to see him sitting in the throne. There's never, ever, ever mentioned anywhere in the entire Bible anybody's throne. Except for Solomon's. I mean, metaphorically, God refers to David's throne but that's just the concept of being king, but not actually describing a literal physical throne. Not that other kings don't have one, but the emphasis on what it looked like. There were six steps leading up to the throne, and back of it was rounded on the top. Now, six steps going up. Think about six steps going up your stairwell. That puts the throne pretty high above everybody else. 
Remember the whole point of the, the regulations of the Deuteronomy king was it ends with saying that the reason the king is to restrict himself in all this way is so that he may not see himself any higher or better than all of his brethren in the nation. And I'm not right there. Six steps is pretty high to be above everybody else. The back was round and on top, and the throne had two armrests with a statue of a lion standing in each side. And there were 12 statues of lions on the six steps, one lion on each of the six steps. There was nothing like it in any other kingdom. And that's true. I mean, yes, even if you think about it, like even the medieval period where they, thrones were really not that amazing. They were just wood-carved thrones. And most of the thrones, even the Pharaoh's throne was not really that amazing when you find it. It was just kind of a small chair with a lot of gold on it, and that was about it. But to actually build it up and put all these lines on it and all that kind of stuff, once again, it's graven images. Graven images. All of King Solomon's cups were made of gold. And all the household items in the palace of Lebanon forest were made of pure gold. There were no silver items, for silver was not considered very valuable. Now, silver actually is very valuable at this time period. It's just nothing compared to gold. So he has now collected wealth and gold to such a point that silver is now like, it's not that valuable. It's like, why would I want silver? I'm like, give me all the silver. I'll take it. Along with Hiram's fleet, the king had fleet of a large merchant ships that sailed the sea. And once every three years, a fleet came into port with cargoes of gold, silver, ivory, and apes and peacocks. Now it's just about, look at the rare animals that I can collect. King Solomon was wealthier and wiser than any of the kings of the earth. Everyone in the world wanted to visit Solomon to see him display his God-given wisdom. It becomes an entertainment, a show now. Everybody wants to be like him. It does not say that everyone was coming to Yahweh. You see, in contrast to Cain, at the very beginning of the Bible, in chapter 4, Cain is building this self-glorified empire. And then it says in chapter 5, and Seth was born, and at that time, people began to call on the name of Yahweh. Nobody's calling the name of Yahweh here when they come and see him. Nobody is being led to Yahweh. Nobody's knowing Yahweh. They're coming to see his display, his display. Year after year, visitors brought their gifts, which included items of silver, items of gold, clothes, perfumes, spices, horses, and mules. The wealthier are just getting wealthier. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses. This is ridiculous. He kept them in assigned cities in Jerusalem, and the king made silver as plentiful in Jerusalem as stones. Cedar was as plentiful as the sycamore fig trees are in the lowlands. And Solomon acquired all his horses from Egypt and from Kew, and the king's traders purchased them for the, from Q. And he paid 600 silver pieces for each chariot from Egypt, 150 silver pieces for each horse. And they also sold chariots and horses to all the kings and the Hittites, to all the kings of Syria. Not only is he collecting horses, but he's now dealing in horses. He's trading in them. And so gold, 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 gold. And the only time that it ever mentions God here is that God is the one who gave him his wisdom. And that's it. 
God does not get any of the glory here. 